Well, go ahead and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah 5, as I mentioned earlier, I'll actually be kind of uh, doing a little survey of a few verses, or a few chapters rather, um, of Jeremiah 5, 6, and 7. And so we'll walk through some of those verses together in a few moments. I'll be returning next week to our sermon series on 1 Timothy, uh, where we're, we're looking at living together as the household of faith. We took a bit of a hiatus you know, weeks back when we went into this stay-at-home uh, situation and kind of uh, detoured a bit uh, to some other messages. And then, of course, that bled right into Christmas. And um, so we'll come back to First Timothy in a couple of, uh, or next week. But my message this morning, I'll just say up front, is one I really don't want to preach. And in many cases, you really don't want to hear either. I have sat on this message for five weeks, literally. Um, twice I have begun the week with plans of preaching and then setting it aside. But it's, it's a burden on my heart, and I think we need to hear it while we are in the midst of this pandemic. And so I'm simply going to declare it to you and let God, by His Spirit, do uh, with it what He will. But it's a message titled, A People Awaiting Calamity. A people waiting, awaiting calamity, and maybe you can infer even from that title uh, why I might have had some hesitation in this, knowing people wanted and needed to hear a message of hope and encouragement. And there might you know, not be anything of this sort that people want to associate with a season like we're in. But again, one, I think there's a message for us that God has, and um, let's open our ears to hear what he has to say. And so we'll do this a, a little bit in reverse. Again, I'm not going to read the text because of the way I'm going to step through it. And so let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessings on this time. Well, God, we, we do thank you that you are God, that you have spoken into creation, that you've spoken a word that is true and living and one that ministers to the very depths of our soul. You know Lord, what we need to hear all the time, but especially in regard to this particular message in this particular season we're in. And so, God, I pray maybe more than ever that you would move me out of the way and speak your word into our congregation right now, that, that only what you really want to be heard would be heard that somehow, God, you would just delete from memory anything that strays from being the truth that we need to hear today. And so, God, I ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, before we get into the text here, um, I'll remind you or mind you if you don't uh, if you've never been familiar with Jeremiah but Jeremiah prophesied in the period leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and they were carried away into exile into captivity to Babylon and I think that actually happened in the year 586 BC but Jeremiah pre uh, preached prophesied in the 40 years leading up to that and it was a 70 year exile that they experienced but Jeremiah faithfully preached the message that God gave him over a period of 40 years. And he was despised for it. He was threatened with death 
Uh, his scrolls were burned. He was put in prison. He was even thrown into a cistern at one point. But his life was given to the calling of preaching this message that was unpopular and unappreciated and never taken to heart. So in, in other words, if Jeremiah had planted a church, nobody would have come to his church. If he had a podcast, nobody wanted to hear what Jeremiah had to say, but he preached that message faithfully for 40 years. It was never taken to heart, and as a consequence, they were taken into exile for 70 years. And so I want us to, I want us, before we even get into the text, to have an appreciation for this, because think about the significance of that time period. That is a lifetime, 70 years. The implications then being um, that for a generation that was just being born, at the beginning of that exile period, they would spend their lifetime in captivity, eating the rotten fruit of the sins of their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers. That's the heritage that they had been given. And so let's, with that kind of frame of reference, let's come to chapter 5 to begin with. And again, if you'll just Sort of walk with me here as I jump from one section of verses to another. But to get a sense of what's going on in Jeremiah's day. Because obviously what we want to do is make some connection between their day and our day. But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. In other words, though the, 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 the words of acknowledgement and honoring of God is on their lips, it's not true. Even though they're saying all the time, as the Lord lives, they don't mean it, is what he's saying. Verse 3, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. You have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. And then it goes on to describe some of what uh, the consequence of, of that will be. And then in verse 7, I'll pick back up there in verses 7 and 8. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me, the Lord is saying, and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? And then jump down to verse 12. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And so we see a pattern unfolding already. God is saying what's true of them, how uh, fixed they are, set they are in their sinful ways, which is deserving of punishment, and yet they're saying no disaster will come on us. And he goes on to, to, to sort of talk about what judgment is going to look like for them. And then down in verse 18 says, But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make full end of you. So 
judgment is coming. The reasons for the judgment are quite clear, but even the judgment itself will not be complete and utter. He's saying, I will not bring that to full end. There will be a restoration beyond the judgment and beyond even the exile. And then down in verse uh, 28 of chapter 5, describing these sinful and wayward people, he talks some about the specifics of some of their sins, but he says they have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things? He says again. Now jump with me down to verse 10 of chapter 6. And again, all I'm trying to do is give you a sense of these three chapters, which really gives us a, a great deal of insight into the whole book of Jeremiah. This message, in a sense, is about the message of Jeremiah to the people of his day. But we're trying to get a flavor from uh, a survey of these three chapters. But we get in verse 10 of, uh, of chapter 6, and then we'll jump to verse 13. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Verse 13 and 14, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. The prophets and the priests, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of this people called by the name of God. They are liars in their own self, and they preach a message of peace when, when peace is not the message these people need to be hearing. It's the one they want to hear. But it's just not the one appropriate to the occasion from God's standpoint. And then in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Look at what it says at the end of verse 16 there. But they said, We will not walk in it. Walk in the ancient paths where the good way is and find rest for your souls. They said, we will not walk in it. And then over to chapter 7. I'm going to read straight through verses 3 through 11. And we'll hear some of the same themes we've been hearing here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now let me explain that uh, briefly. What they are saying is, this, this statement, this is the temple of the Lord. The message is, hey, this is God's house. This is God's city. This is God's land. We're safe here. Nothing's going to happen here. This is God's house. You think God's going to let his house be destroyed, his people be destroyed in his city and his land? What he says is, do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
verse 5, continuing, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. Well, that gives us a flavor of the message that Jeremiah is preaching uh, to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah. And again, you get a sense of how deafened their ear is to it, the alternative message they would prefer to hear and why they are so resistant to him and his message. But before I get into this, as we try to make some observations about what we just read and then make some application to our own day, let me make a disclaimer here. Um, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm obviously preaching this message because of the season we're in of experience in a pandemic. I am not saying or implying that God is judging the world through this, that is judging China or Italy or the U.S. or New York or any of that. None of us have insight into that. Uh, none of us know precisely what God is doing in the world at any given moment. And so we, we, we can't make those kind of declarations. It's foolish to do so. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm certainly not saying that God is judging any individual, that any individual or, or, or cities that have experienced sickness and death because of this, that it's a result of God's disfavor in any respect. I am not saying that. And I'm not saying or implying that America is the modern-day Israel. Okay, so, so none of those explicit statements or direct correlations of that sort. But I do want at least to make some loose comparisons between their situation and ours um, in at least a couple of ways, okay? Number one, that God is holy and unchanging. That what he considered abominable in Jeremiah's day, he considers abominable today. What is sin then is sin now. And he is the same and his years never come to an end. That's number one, he's holy and unchangeable. And the second thing is, and, and this, is, this is kind of the crux of the matter here today, that when our world is shaken and our idols wobble, as it were, our, our, if you picture the little you know, statuesque kind of idols that, that uh, you might associate with pagan worship, as, as our world is shaken and our idols wobble and we scurry to keep them from falling and breaking apart, we need to take notice at what is being revealed in that moment, in this moment, what is being revealed about what's going on in our own heart and accept this moment as an opportunity to repent. To confess that before the Lord and to repent of it. And so let's first of all quickly observe four facts concerning these people who were awaiting calamity 
um, in the, the, the generation of Jeremiah, and then we'll make some application to our own situation. But, but first of all, they, they, they live in open sin and idolatry. You caught that message, I think, if you were reading along and paying attention. They worshiped other gods, uh, including nature itself or elements of nature itself. We would have had to back up to chapter 2 to see that. But they worship other gods. They commit adultery and sexual immorality. Uh, they're full of deceit and lies. It said in verse 5 or verse 27 there, they know no bounds to their evil deeds. They, they do not judge with justice the cause of the fatherless. They do not defend the rights of the poor and needy. Those are just some of the sins that we brushed across there, but they live in open sin and idolatry. That's fact number one about a people awaiting calamity. Fact number two is that God calls them to repentance and offers them mercy. So it was mentioned twice here in chapter 7. It shows up again in snippets throughout uh, the book of Jeremiah. But he says, amend your ways and I'll let you live in this place. It's a real offer of repentance, in other words. Now, he goes on in other places to state with certainty, they will not listen. It's certain that they are going to continue in their ways, but it's not necessary that they continue in their sinful ways. They have a real offer to, to really repent and to receive real mercy. They live in open sin and idolatry. Number two, God calls them to repentance. Number three, the, the, the third fact we would observe here is that the priests and the prophets tell them everything is okay. Because that's exactly what they want to hear. They're, they're ungodly in a variety of ways, obviously. Um, but, you know, more specifically, full of lies. And the prophets and the priests say to them, peace peace where there is no peace. Here's the irony here. One of the reasons I struggled with following through with preaching this message, one of the reasons I wrestled with whether it was even appropriate, is knowing that what people want to hear is a message of peace, peace, especially in a season of unrest and uncertainty. And people need to hear, in a certain respect, a message of peace and hope and encouragement. And therein lies the tension. But these people here, they had no reason to feel at peace. And yet their prophets and priests were preaching to them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If we were to read on in chapter 23, uh, we read where it says they, they actually, the, the, the priests that is and the prophets actually fortified and emboldened people in their evil ways. Because the, the positive message they're giving them such that nobody repents. They need to repent. But their prophets are not giving them that message. They tell people, it will be well with you and no disaster will come upon you. A feel-good, prosperity sort of message all the time when that is not the message God wants them to hear. It says, uh, too, elsewhere, that these prophets and priests tell the king what he wants to hear. That the king surrounds himself with spiritual advisors and spokespersons who will, who will preach to him the message he wants to hear. Jeremiah is saying, hey, calamity's coming your way uh, by way of foreign invaders. And the king doesn't want to hear that message. 
throw Jeremiah in the cistern, uh, surround himself with priests who will tell him what he wants to hear. The king is so driven by his own pride that he'd rather hear self-affirming messages than the truth. In fact, number four about these people awaiting calamity is that the people refuse to repent. Again, that's said explicitly that they, uh, in, in, in chapter 5, verse 3, they, refuse, they have refused to repent. They refused to take correction. In chapter 6, it said, the, the word of the Lord is an object of scorn to them. They take no pleasure in it. Verse 16 of chapter 6, walk in the ancient paths, but they said, we will not walk in it. And then in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7, verse 27, which was beyond the passage that we read, God says to Jeremiah, so you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. They have a real offer to repent, but they refuse to heed it. And so what does all that have to do with us? Or, 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 or how might that in some way apply to us? Well, I will let the Holy Spirit convict you as conviction is needed or appropriate. You can decide uh, by, under his guidance the extent to which some of these connections would be, be made. But I think it would be easy enough for us to identify parallels between some of the evils we just mentioned committed by Israel and Judah in their day and those committed by uh, our world and our country today. And we would be quick to identify those things that were true, uh, those sins that were mirrored in the unbelieving world in our day. So we would be quick to point out that in our culture, our hands too shed innocent blood by way of the more than 40 million abortions worldwide each year. Most despicably, the late-term and partial birth abortions, and even the suggestion uh, by some, the implication by some, in the last six months to a year, I suppose, that in some situations infanticide might even be permissible. So we would be quick maybe to make that correlation of uh, hands that shed innocent blood in our own culture. We might be quick to point out hostility toward God, open hostility toward God uh, in parts of our country or even uh, in those places around the world where there's outright persecution of Christians. In many Islamic countries in the Middle East and, and Africa, in communist countries like North Korea and China, we might point out uh, the fact that some of our own political leaders right now in recent news have overtly denied God's hand in our affairs at all. We say, God, God didn't do this. We might point out, again, the, the, the correlations, the similarities between their culture and ours when we see and hear these kinds of things. It might be fair to question also if in the political arena in our day that there are spiritual advisors who will not altogether speak the truth to power, but will say what their leader they're advising wants to hear. 
and who will turn and say to the public, who will give a spin that essentially amounts to uh, lies or obscuring of lies because it's what the politician they're advising wants to hear. Again, you determine yourself whether there's any correlation to be made there. I think we would certainly agree that in our culture, we have cast off moral restraint and flaunted our immorality. That is becoming more and more true in the culture at large. And in fact, I think eerily true that the more God has blessed and prospered us, this is exactly what it says back in verse uh, 7 of chapter 5. The more and more God has prospered us, the more sexual license we have insisted on in our culture. The more prosperous we've become in our country, the more sexual license we've insisted on and even insist that everybody call it good. No matter how God uh, views that, our culture insists that whatever sexual license we want to, to uh, claim for ourselves, that everybody else affirm it as a good thing. And as we've considered before, uh, the church is not altogether immune from some of those ills either. In fact, the, the, the abuse and deviance in that area has been rampant at places in the church. But let's just get more personal if we may. Is it, a, is it too much of a stretch to say that like the people in Jeremiah's day, we who name the name of God might actually be guilty of worshiping gods of our own making in a different respect perhaps. But you do not need to have an actual carved image in order to worship the image of a created thing. And most often when we do it, we worship a God made in our own image. We refashion Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord Most High. We refashion Him in, in, in our own image, Christ in our own image. It turns out God likes the same things we like, cares about the same things we care about. And it's become really an epidemic pattern of its own sort in Protestantism in recent generations that, that we remake God in our own cultural image in every generation. Is it possible that many of us in the church, like those in Jeremiah's day, have failed to act justly and compassionately toward the poor and needy and toward the immigrant. That, that while we are supporting what maybe many of us would consider to be wise, conservative public policy on those matters, um, have on a personal level been distant and condescending and judgmental toward them. Again, you'll have to answer that question yourself, but let me just insert something here uh, that, that I've not written, but that uh, needs to be said for the sake of clarity in a couple of ways. Um, uh, Tim Keller said something along the lines of, if you want to reach a culture, you have to first confront the idols of that culture. If you, if you want to reach a culture for Christ, you have to first confront the idols of the culture. And he points to Acts chapter 17 and Paul preaching on Mars Hill as an example of that. Well, it is, it is my conviction, and I, I've said it some, I think I've alluded to it probably more, 
that for many in evangelicalism, uh, cultural conservatism has become an idol. It has become an idol. And politics and politicians have substituted for God. It has become our highest concern. You know, the, where 1 Peter 3, 15 says, um, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Our hope is always in November. It's always in the next election. And we are always busied about preparing ourselves and our people for that. And, the, and, and even conservative ideology has become, for many of us, a substitute for the Word of God. We would never claim that either one of those is true. But it, I, I, it is my conviction that that has become an idol in the heart of our evangelical culture for many of us. And I'm speaking to you, brothers and sisters, as a fellow conservative when I say that. And again, maybe you can appreciate my hesitancy in even wanting to preach a message like this because every time you say something like that, people get terribly offended. And whether you're saying it about conservatives or whether you're saying it about liberals, the one subject you can't speak about without offending somebody terribly is, is politics. And yet, that is, if that is where our idols lie, that is where we need to speak and it's why I'm doing it today. To say, God, shake our idols that we might let go of them so that you don't have to wrench them out of our hands destructively. Well, I'll, I'll move on, and that's uh, what might land me in the cistern as well. Um, but uh, uh, continuing on, while, while any or, or all of these things that, we've, that I've just mentioned, all, any or all of these sins or patterns, might be ring true, and I apologize for uh, itching my nose here, but we, we might, we go on assuming we're okay. And this is, we, we follow this pattern as much as you see in biblical times. That whatever sins may be true of us and whatever little passing ways they might be revealed, we go on assuming we're okay, that we don't need to repent, that no disaster will come on us. See, as soon as it appears the whole world's not going to crumble, we go right back to the same old patterns. Even at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, as it struck our homeland and as these stay-at-home orders began to unfold, you know, we had about 36 hours of peace toward one another. But then when it was, when it was clear this wasn't going to be as, maybe as devastating as we were afraid it would be, or somehow we just got bored at home, we go right back to shouting and, and finding blame and all of the same sort of clamoring that is, is our normal pattern. Sure, that we're not the ones who need to repent. And beloved, you can be sure that if you are always finding blame in, in somebody else, finding fault in somebody else and pointing blame at somebody else, it is a sure sign that you have something you need to repent of. And yet we at times are just as stubborn as the people of Jeremiah's day who say we will not and no destruction will come on us. We presume upon the grace of God and our mantra where they said 
this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We would just change that to say, we have the favor of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. But it's the same presumption that, hey, we're Christians, nothing, nothing can happen to us. It can't ever be, but so bad. You know, Jeremiah goes on uh, in this book to prophesy in a couple of places that judgment will unfold in the way of famine, sword, and pestilence. And, and without making too much of this and making more of it than it deserves, I want to suggest something to you for your consideration about how much of our attention God ought to have and how reflective maybe we ought to be about what's going on in our own hearts individually and what needs repentance. But consider that we have experienced in the first uh, 20 years of this century, this millennium, we've experienced three major national crises. The terrorist attacks of 9-11. And might I suggest it's a glimpse of how quickly the sword can strike. Totally unexpected. We experienced in 2008-2009 a financial collapse. A glimpse, just a glimpse, of how suddenly famine can strike, if you will. And right now, we are presently living in a pandemic virus. virus a glimpse of how sudden pestilence can strike. The sword famine, and pestilence. We've been given a little snapshot of each one of those. And what is our response? Is there anything we think we need to hear? Is there any message for us in that? Do you not believe, friends, that any one of those experiences could have been 10 times worse than it was? 9-11 even, even the planned attacks that didn't go as they were designed to go, had they gone through, that would have been far more devastating than it already was. And it was life-changing and devastating as it was. Do you not know that there is so much worse evil bound up in this fallen creation that is just being restrained by the grace of God. Do you not know that? And, and, and he doesn't have to hurl that at us in judgment. You know, he doesn't have to point it in our direction and, and thrust it upon us. All he has to do is simply take his hands of restraint off of it and give us over to our reprobate minds as Romans 1 describes. All he has to do is just let the restraint go and evil will swarm to greater degrees than what we've experienced and perhaps what we can imagine. We've preached ourselves this, this message that all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart and then you can live pretty much however you want without consequence. And that all together we can do that and it doesn't matter how much immorality or idol idolatry we commit or how much our mouth is a fountain of lies at times. We're just secure. But the truth is, we have no reason to feel secure 
as we continue walking in patterns of sin and idolatry, imagining that we still walk in his favor. We should rather assume that if we continue in those patterns, we too are a people just awaiting calamity. And as I conclude here, I just want to say I don't want to obscure the fact that there is hope for us that they did not have immediately in Jeremiah's day. In fact, Jeremiah declared that the part of the hope that they had that laid in the far distant future for them was that God would make a new covenant. He prophesied the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. A covenant uh, in, in, by which Christ would be the sacrificial lamb. That Christ would be the high priest who mediated the covenant. So that we have hope in Christ that is enduring. So I don't want to obscure this fact that there is real hope for the believer in Christ that can't be taken away. But it does not give us any sense of security that we can continue in patterns of unrepentant sin and idolatry and expect God to honor that because we bear the name of Christ. It is not true. But for those who don't know Christ and have every reason to fear the judgment of God, please know simply that you can trust Christ and be saved from that judgment. Whatever else may come, that you can be safe and secure, forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, in Christ alone. And I'll, and I'll just conclude by saying, the church, lest, lest this be obscured, the church of Jesus Christ will never be destroyed by sword, by famine, by pestilence, or any other kind of persecution. The church of Jesus Christ will never be destroyed, but God loves us enough that he will destroy our idols in order to save us to the uttermost. But let's pray together. Father, uh, this is a, a hard message indeed. You know in my own heart how much I have wrestled to even be willing to preach it, much less to do it well. And so again, God, I pray by your spirit, you would just work the truth into the hearts of people as you will. Would you be gracious? Would you be gracious to us, Lord? Would you be so kind to lead us to repentance that we might delight ourselves in you, that you might be our ultimate concern, that there would be nothing that speaks more clearly or authoritatively than your word to us. There would be nothing upon which our desires and affections are set above you and you alone. But God, have your way in the hearts of your people to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.